please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. If you don't have a Bible, if you did not bring one with you, you will find them scattered throughout the auditorium under the chairs. I would encourage you to find one and turn with us to the book of Romans. If you can get through what I'm going to say over the next 45 minutes without opening the Bible and looking at it in detail, I am wasting your time. And uh, you should go someplace else. You're going to need the Bible. As we turn to it and as we get into it and discern with the help of God's Spirit exactly what it is uh, God declares through His Word by His Spirit to His people. I'm going to begin reading in Romans chapter 1. No collective gasp, that's good. Uh, We are finished with chapter 1, but I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1. I did receive an email this past week from someone who shall remain nameless, uh, telling me I could stay in Romans 1 as long as I wanted. That was kind, I appreciated that. The rest of you are thinking, nothing more to see here, move on, move on. Well, that is what we're going to do today. We're moving into chapter 2, finally. But I want to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 29 so that we do not lose the thought flow, and also because some of the things Paul is going to say at the outset of chapter 2 relate directly back to the concluding verses in chapter 1. So follow along. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 29, and I'm only going to go as far as verse 5 of chapter 2. And so here, the word of the Lord. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now let me begin by saying, something happens. Something happens between chapter 1, verse 32, and chapter 2, verse 1. By way of reminder, the chapter divisions, and so the big numbers in our Bibles, the verse divisions, the small numbers, they are not inspired. They are not part of God's word. They were added centuries later simply to help us, simply to facilitate our reading. In some instances, they're extremely useful. In some instances, not so useful. 
In this case, they got it right. It's very helpful, this chapter division, because it indicates to us that although Paul, yes, he's continuing on the same theme, same subject matter, there's a slight shift. There's a slight change in emphasis. Something happens between chapter 1, verse 32, and chapter 2, verse 1. By way of review, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul has been making it clear, he has been demonstrating to us that God has revealed himself. God does make himself known. That God is his own revealer. And he reveals himself immediately to all people in all places at all times. And he does so through creation. Sure enough. Paul has made it clear, secondly, that we suppress the knowledge of God. We suppress it. We suppress it. Why? The issue is not intellectual. The issue is moral. We suppress the knowledge of God by our own unrighteousness. We suppress it because we hate it. We suppress it because we are born with a certain bent, a certain inclination away from God. Because we suppress it, we plunge ourselves into idolatry. We exchange the glory of God for an idol. And this idolatry takes all sorts of different forms of what we can call self-worship. Not only that, but we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And so we begin, quite literally, we begin to revel in the absurd. And what is the final result of this suppression of the knowledge of God? It is behavior that is actually antithetical to nature. He makes that point, doesn't he? quite clearly, in verses 26 and 27. Fair enough, clear enough. But here something changes. There's a shift in emphasis. Why? Paul, being the intelligent man that he was, he knew. He knew what people, some people would be thinking. He knew that as he wrote this section and as people read it, heard it read publicly, heard it proclaimed, that some people would start thinking a certain way. And he wants to address specifically that way of thinking. I'm going to represent that way of thinking to you. I'm going to do a little bit of a role play here and uh, try to convey this thinking that Paul is going after here in the first five verses of chapter 2. So here it is, a little role play. Listen carefully to this. Paul, imagine someone addressing the apostle having heard what he has said in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul, I've been listening to what you've been saying. I agree wholeheartedly. I do not like what I am seeing in society. It angers me. And it actually frightens me. Paul, I am absolutely shocked at the moral decadence. I am completely astounded at the prevalence of all the creepy things you've mentioned. Paul, it wasn't like this back in the good old days. I wish we could somehow get, turn back the clock. I wish we could somehow get rid of all those people, especially the unnatural ones you mentioned in verses 26 and 27. Paul, I want to applaud you. I'm glad you spoke out against them. It is about time someone said something. But Paul, I have one small objection. You could have said even more 
about how angry God is with them. You could have told them in no uncertain terms that they are going to burn. Paul, I like it when you speak passionately against those things. Oh, Paul, I'm so thankful I'm not like them. I'm so thankful I follow a higher code of conduct. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but God knows I'm pretty close. At the very least, I'm better than them. And I am confident God will overlook my mistakes and my indiscretions. After all, isn't that what grace is all about. Paul knows some people, perhaps a lot of people, are thinking just like that. And so there is a shift in emphasis between chapter 1, verse 32, and chapter 2, verse 1. I like to do a little little shooting. I don't know if anyone else here likes to do a little shooting. You go out to the target range, and you put a couple targets up at 100 yards, and you fire 10 rounds at that first target, right? And then you move to the second target, fire another 10 rounds. Well, that's what's happening here. Paul had a target in view in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and now he shifts his sights to the second target. He moves. He moves from the openly immoral to the secretly immoral. He moves from the outwardly sinful to the inwardly sinful. You see, Paul has made his point. God is his own revealer. And God reveals himself immediately to everyone, all people, all places, at all times. We suppress the knowledge of God. That suppression of the knowledge of God results in idolatry. Here's what we fail to understand oftentimes. That idolatry, as you work your way down, can go, does go, in one of two directions. In some instances, it goes off into the realm of moral debauchery. He's dealt with that again in chapter 1. In other instances, it goes off into the realm of moral hypocrisy. And that is what is he, dealing, he is dealing with here in the first five verses of chapter 2. And so he begins at the outset, chapter 2, verse 1, very first statement, by bringing the charge. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And so he he reverses the order here. Normally we would expect a lawyer. What does he do? He presents the evidence and then there's the verdict. Paul reverses the order. He actually gives us the verdict and then he's going to present the evidence. And so here's the verdict. Again, the first statement, chapter two, verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Notice two things. Be very careful here. Approach this verse cautiously. First thing, notice their guilt. Every one of you who judges, that is their guilt. Every one of you who judges, now slam on the brakes, please. Because when we hear that in our day, our climate, our environment, that idea of judging has been so sorely abused, so sorely misunderstood, that when people hear Paul here condemning those who judge, they're immediately thinking what? They're immediately thinking, yeah, I I agree with that, that we're never supposed to judge someone else's behavior. We're never supposed to condemn anyone else's conduct. That we're supposed to be accepting of everyone. No, we are not. That is not what Paul is saying. If we refuse to differentiate between good and evil, right and wrong, 
truth and error, what is holy and what is unholy, we actually become the very people Paul condemns back in verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's what so many people want today. They want approval. They want you to approve them. They want you to approve of their conduct. They want you to approve of their behavior. And if you dare cross them, if you dare challenge them, if you dare call them out, if you, ever, if you dare label something sin or unholy or unrighteous, what is the response? You're not supposed to judge. How dare you judge me? And it all rests on this fallacy. I mentioned it a while back, but it certainly bears worth repeating. This fallacy which plagues evangelicalism in our day, the fallacy is this. God accepts me just as I am. That is a fallacy. God accepts me just as I am. No, he does not. God accepts me in spite of who I am so that he can transform me into what I am not. The gospel is not only about what God does for us in Christ Jesus. It is about what God does in us by Christ Jesus. The gospel is about justification and sanctification. The gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ who pays the penalty of our sin and who breaks the power of our sin. And yet his hit is like a tidal wave in our day. Don't you judge me. How dare you judge me? Oh, see what Paul's saying there? We're not supposed to judge one another. That is not what Paul is saying. And so what is his point when he identifies their guilt, every one of you who judges? It is simply this, and it becomes clear as we make our way through the following verses. Again, it is simply this. Paul is referring to those who will look at others, who do look at others, and reason to themselves They deserve God's judgment. They are going to get what is coming to them while ignoring the fact that they too deserve God's judgment. He's referring to those individuals who have no problem identifying others as deserving, meriting, earning the judgment of God while neglecting their own state, their own condition before God. They think that person, that individual, certainly deserves, merits God's judgment more than me. That is the individual Paul is going after here. That is the guilt. That is what they are guilty of, every one of you who judges. Notice, secondly, their condemnation. Very first statement in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Paul used that term in the first chapter. It's the second time we find it. It is actually a legal term. It refers to a man, it refers to a woman who stands before judge and jury and has absolutely no rational or reasonable argument to present in his defense. He is without excuse. I think I gave you the illustration a couple months back of someone who's driving from Glen Rose to Cleburne, 65 mile an hour zone, posted, I don't know how many, every half mile or so. 
This individual's driving at 95 and increasing. The state trooper pulls him over, approaches the window. Do you know what speed you were going? Yeah, I was going 95. Well, you were speeding. Well, I, I didn't know I was speeding. I didn't know I was driving in excess of the speed limit. To which the state trooper responds, look, two things going on here. One, it's posted 65 all the way from here to Cleburne. Secondly, you know there's nowhere in Texas you can drive 95. You are without excuse. Be silent. There is no rational, no reasonable argument that you can present in your defense. And so that is their condemnation. Their guilt is the fact that they judge others while thinking they escape the judgment of God. And now Paul brings this sentence of condemnation. You are without excuse. And his goal, now having given the charge right at the outset, his goal now is to prove from the middle of verse 1 through the end of verse 5, it is to prove that they are without excuse. He wants to show shock them. He wants to awaken them from their presumption. He wants to awaken them from their self-confidence. I was reading, I can't remember which news, newspaper it was on the, on, on the internet this past week, but a man in Atlanta earlier this week, outstanding on one side of his driveway, struck by lightning. Did you hear about this? Knocked him clear across the other side of his driveway. He was out for a few seconds, came to, could smell the burning hair. He was okay, don't worry. But then looked back at the other side of the driveway, and there were his boots. One of them smoking, smoldering. The lightning had knocked him clear out of his boots. That's what Paul wants to do here. He wants to knock you right out of your boots. Socks, too, if you wear them. He wants to shock us. He wants to awaken his audience. That individual who has been sitting there with his arms crossed, thinking to himself, well, it's about time. I'm glad Paul has laid into them finally. If anyone deserves the wrath of God, hallelujah, it's them. And Paul now turns his attention. Hang on a second. I've been talking about you all along. Make no mistake, you who judge. You are without excuse. And now let me prove it. And let me prove it by bringing you before the very tribunal of God. And he emphasizes four truths concerning that tribunal. Four truths concerning God's judgment which are intended to awaken, to shake, to shock that individual, that moral hypocrite who stands there, sits there with their finger pointed at those whom Paul has described in the first chapter. So here's the first mark of God's tribunal. The first mark of God's judgment. It is fair. F-A-I-R. It is fair. Look at what he says. Next statement in verse 1. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now to make sense of this, let me ease into it. Let me share with you something that is often we often overlook. It's this. Uh, God, it, God is extremely, extremely fair when it comes to our judgment. He is an unbelievably fair judge. He is so fair. You want to know how fair he is? He allows us to establish the criteria by which he will judge us. Now that's fair. On the judgment day, he's going to permit you and he is going to permit me to establish the criteria by which he judges us. And where will that criteria come from? It will come from every word we have ever spoken here on earth. 
Francis Schaeffer emphasized this decades ago. And Francis Schaeffer made the point, look, we walk through life with an invisible tape recorder hung around our necks. It's not a tape recorder today. What is it? I don't know. Back in the day, I'm thinking boom boxes. Remember those things? It took 127 batteries and only lasted about 30 minutes. An MP3 player, does it record? I have absolutely no idea. But we have something hung around our necks that records. And on the day of judgment, all God is going to do is simply this. Right, it's time for judgment. I'm going to allow you to establish the criteria by which I judge you, and it's time to play back the tape recorder. And we're going to hear every word you ever spoke. Every time you ever identified something as sin, or as wrong, or as evil. Every time you pass judgment on someone else. Every time you acknowledge that someone else deserved judgment, condemnation, we're going to play it all back, and by your own words, you will become the judge. And we will establish the criteria by which I will pass sentence. And so what's that? Okay, you went through life identifying murder as a crime. That makes sense. You went through life identifying murder as something unacceptable identifying it as unrighteous, unholy, identifying it as a sin, identifying it as something which deserves judgment. That's fine. But you know and I know that murder is simply the manifestation of what? A root problem. Anger. Uh, You have now just established the criteria by which I'm going to judge you. It is on the basis of anger. And we all know what a hothead you were. And now we're going to take stock of your life and that anger which just riddled your life, every manifestation of it, and therein lies your condemnation because you yourself have already established the criteria by judging and passing sentence on those who murder. All right, now those who commit adultery, you've acknowledged that's wrong. You've acknowledged homosexuality is wrong. You've noticed all these types of fornication, they're wrong. That's fine, that's great. That's now the criteria by which I'm going to judge you. But you know and I know that all of those outer manifestations of immorality are simply the expression of what? Lust. Let's take a look at your internet usage. Let's enter into the inner recesses of your mind. And what do we find there? We find, oh, judge, you have just damned yourself. You have just passed sentence on yourself. I am simply going to use your own criteria. You're establishing it. And what's that? You're against embezzlement. Well, that's fine. You're against people stealing and robbing and, and, and preying on the weak and the defenseless. You're against all that. That's fantastic. But where does it all come from? It's all simply an expression of what? Greed. Now, let's take a look at your life. and Let's see what may, has made you tick. What is it you have lived for? What is it you have pursued? What is it, is it that has marked you, that has characterized you? And on and on and on it's going to go, and God's judgment will be perfectly fair. Oh, you judge, Paul says to these people. You're going to be the judge. And God's going to be so fair that he is going to permit you to establish the criteria by which he will judge you. Look again at his words. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Remember, he's trying to knock us out of our boots. Second mark of God's judgment, here it is. It is inescapable, brings us into verse 2. We know, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. What things? I read it at the beginning. The things he mentions in verses 29 and 30 
We know God's judgment rightly falls on those who do such things. Now notice Paul's question in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? When I was a teenager all those moons ago, 14, 15, 16, our youth group, our church youth group, we would uh, take an annual trip, an annual trek to Niagara Falls. And uh, there's a part of Niagara Falls, Canadian side, that's a little, I wouldn't say seedy, but a little rundown, you know, wax museums, that sort of thing. Not really my cup of tea, but I had a house of mirrors. And the seven or eight guys, nine, ten guys, 14, 15 years of age, we'd go in there and we'd play a game of tag. But those house of mirrors, you know what a house of mirrors does, right? It distorts your... Self-image. I mean, 14, 15-year-old boys, they've already got a completely whacked sense of self-image, don't they? You, you, you compound it, you put them in a house of mirrors, and some of those mirrors made us look, I don't know, as wide as an 18-wheeler. Some of them made us look really short. Some of them completely high, distorting our image of ourselves. Most people, the vast majority of people, as a matter of fact, absolutely everyone who has ever lived has gone through life living in a house of mirrors with a distorted view of ourselves, not a view of our bodies, but a view of our souls, the view of our condition as we stand before a holy God. James White wrote, the greatest danger, the greatest danger is to be ignorant of one's spiritual condition. It's worth repeating. The greatest danger is to be ignorant of one's spiritual condition. Let me reword it, rephrase it, reframe it. The greatest danger is to go through life living in a house of mirrors and never really seeing yourself as God sees you. That is the greatest danger. And Paul is speaking to it here in verses 2 and 3. He's speaking to those who escape, think they escape God's judgment or at least don't deserve it, merit it as much as other people. And yet these people rightly know, they acknowledge that God's judgment rightly falls on those things Paul has mentioned back in verses 29 and 30. But something escapes their notice. I mean, they are, to use that phrase I like, semi-delusional. You go back to verse 29. Look at what Paul says and pay careful attention to his words. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I think there are 21 sins mentioned there. You know what is striking about them? Only two or three of them have anything to do with actions. The rest have to do with attitude, the condition of the heart. You go through the list again. There in verse 29, murder. But it's actually not the act of murder. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. In other words, it is that state of mind, that attitude of anger, hostility, resentment, which gives rise to murder. The only instances, the only sins that are mentioned, there are actually four of them, which are actually things we do, actions, They begin at the end of verse 29. They are, ooh, this is a doozy. You ready for it? Gossips. Verse 30. Slanderers. 
You go on in verse 30. Boastful. That's an action, right? And then the last one, right at the end of verse 30, disobedient to parents. Where are all the gory details? Where's all the slime? Where's all the creepy stuff? We're not really scraping the bottom of the barrel here, are we exactly? As far as Paul is concerned, we are. Because sin is not primarily concerned with what we do. Although, yes, sins are actions. They are deeds we do or things we fail to do, which are sins. But our actions, the sins we commit, are simply the manifestation of a disease. Sins are simply a symptom of something that ails us within, an attitude of heart, a state of heart, a condition of heart, which is by nature from the moment of birth hostile toward God. And so Paul is saying, look, you've agreed with me that God righteously judges those individuals who practice those things. You haven't read the list. You haven't paid close attention. You've got hung up in verses 26 and 27 and haven't really come to grasp with grips with what I am saying and the inner darkness, that prevailing inner darkness that plagues every man, every woman, and yet you dare to pass judgment. Oh, do you suppose, verse 3, oh man, you, it's there for emphasis. You don't need it in the Greek, but they actually include the personal pronoun, Paul. Why? It's for emphasis. So you could almost read it as follows. Do you suppose, oh man, you, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God, delusional. God's judgment is inescapable. And the third mark of this judgment brings us to verse 4. God's judgment is delayed. It's another question. Fourth verse. Or do you presume? Interesting word. We'll come back to it later. Do you presume on, on what? The riches. So the worth, the wealth of what? Notice the threefold description of God's nature of his kindness. His kindness is seen how? In his works of creation and in his works of preservation. He is creator. He is sustainer. These works reveal his kindness. Second mark of his nature and forbearance. What is his forbearance? It is God forbearing. It is God putting up with those who sin against his kindness. Notice the third description of his nature, patience. What is patience? It is God putting up with. It is God enduring those who willfully, consciously sin against his kindness over a long period of time. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, it actually has a purpose. It is meant to lead you to repentance. People make a huge mistake. Everyone falls into one of these two categories, two mistakes. One over here, two over here. First is this. Many people completely miss, they're oblivious to God's kindness. Just oblivious. They don't understand what that means. The fact that God is before you, the fact that God is behind you, God is over you. He is under you. He is within you. 
Not in a saving sense, but in a sustaining sense. The fact that you could not take one more breath right now apart from God. This is an expression of his kindness. And yet most people completely miss it. Go through life completely, entirely oblivious to it. Every breath of air, every drop of rain, every morsel of food, every second of sleep, every ray of sunshine, every moment of health. And the list goes on and on and on. These things are manifestations of God's kindness to you. And yet again, let me repeat it. Most people go through life completely oblivious to it, thereby demonstrating what? That they are in the grips of ingratitude, plagued with a spirit of unthankfulness. They completely miss it. The second group is this. Those who don't miss it, but they misinterpret it, completely misinterpret it. They say, yeah, preacher, I agree. That's fantastic. Uh, I'm here because God put me here. And God's given me a measure of health. I'm thankful for that. And uh, God's given me a family, fantastic wife and kids. I'm thankful for that. Uh, I've had pretty steady employment. I'm thankful for that. Food on my table, I'm thankful for it. A roof over my head, I'm extremely thankful for it. All of these are expressions of God's kindness. And as I look at God's kindness toward me, here's what I conclude. God must be okay with me. Right? Well, God's been kind. So kind. God is good. Look at all he's given me. All these blessings. I guess God is okay with me. They completely misinterpret the intent of God's kindness. God is not kind toward people as a stamp of approval upon their lives. God is not kind toward us to show us how impressed he is with us. God is not kind toward us to show us how acceptable we are to him. What does Paul say there? Look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant what? It's meant to lead you to repentance. It's not intended to show you that God's okay with you, that God looks favorably upon you. It is to show you the extent of your sin against his kindness, against his goodness, that you might repent of your sinfulness. And look at what Paul says there, the word he uses at the outset of verse 4. Do you presume? Fascinating word. It's actually a compound word in the original. That is two words that are jammed together to get one word. The first word means against. The second word means to know. And so what Paul is saying in this word presume is he's speaking of those who think against knowledge or he is speaking of those who actually think lightly. They don't don't pause for one moment. They never season their hearts with God's kindness, God's goodness, and what it signifies toward them and God's call to repent. Rather, they presume upon it all, presuming on the riches of his kindness as creator and sustainer, his forbearance, all my sin against his kindness, and his patience, his forbearance toward my sin over an extended period of time. Completely missing what? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's judgment is delayed. 
Do not misinterpret that to mean that God is okay with you. No, its design is intentional. It is intended to lead us to repentance. Now here's the fourth mark of God's judgment, fifth verse. It is accumulative. But because of your heart and impenitent heart, interesting choice of words, don't forget them. But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are what? Storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So unless you just move to town in the last day or two, you'll remember the amount of rain we had last weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And if you're here in Glenrose, you went any near the, anywhere near the Paluxy, you know there's that riverbed just meandering through town. And that torrential downpour, that rain, amount of rain over a limited period of time, what happens? The river soon overflows its banks, overflows the dam. The dam becomes completely invisible. Why? Too much rain too quickly. That's not what Paul's saying here. It's part of what he's saying, but not entirely. Paul's point is this. Not that God's wrath is like some torrential downpour. No, no, no. God's wrath is just sort of like a a gentle rainfall. Over time, over time, over time. And it builds, and the water builds, and the water builds, and the dam is there holding it all back. But on time goes, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, slowly but surely. And what's his point? That we are storing up. It is gradually accumulating what? The wrath of God for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And why are we doing that? Or how are we doing that? How are we storing it up? Look with me at what he says at the outset of verse 5. It is because of your heart and impenitent heart. And I said those terms are fascinating. They are fascinating because we find them, and Paul chooses them intentionally. We find them somewhere else in the Bible. You remember that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And at some point, they translated the Hebrew into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. The New Testament is written in Greek. And so these two terms in the Greek, we find these exact terms somewhere in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And Paul undoubtedly has this text in mind. It's Deuteronomy chapter 9. And in Deuteronomy chapter 9, what do we read about? The golden calf. We read about Moses being away on the mountain, receiving the law of God. And in his absence, what do the children of Israel do? They play the harlot, the spiritual harlot. And they build that golden calf, and they prostrate themselves before it. They commit what? Idolatry. And God rebukes the people through Moses on account of what? Their heart. An impenitent heart. What is Paul's point? Oh, it becomes clear now in the context of chapter 1. You go right to the beginning. What is his charge? That God has revealed himself to all people in all places at all times. What have we done with it? We have suppressed the knowledge of God by our own unrighteousness. What is the result? It is idolatry. How do we see that idolatry? Oh, it runs in two directions. In chapter 1, in the case of some, it runs into what? 
moral debauchery. That is how their idolatry is manifested. In the case of others, how is their idolatry manifested? Moral hypocrisy. Do you see his point? It's summed up in the story, misnamed the prodigal son. It is not the story of the prodigal son. It is the story of two brothers, a younger brother and an older brother. Both have a problem. Do you know what their problem is? Neither of them likes their father. Both of them are idolatrous. Both of them are rebellious. How does the younger brother manifest his rebellion? How does he manifest his idolatry? By leaving home and living a debauched life. How does the older brother reveal his animosity toward his father? Reveal his idolatry? By staying home and doing what he's supposed to do. And we know his attitude toward his father. Why? Because when the younger brother actually comes home, penitent, and the father takes that calf and slaughters it and gives his son clothes, oh, the older brother sees with rage. Why? Because the younger brother has already squandered his inheritance, meaning the calf that is killed and the clothes that are given actually belong to whom by right? The older brother. And the older brother is plagued with a sense of entitlement. And his attitude toward his father is simply this, how dare you? Demonstrating what? That the only reason he ever stayed home was why? Because he was looking for something. But there was no love for the father. Oh, please understand this, my friends. God reveals himself. We suppress that knowledge of God by our unrighteousness. That always leads to idolatry. We become what we worship. But that idolatry will go in one of two directions. It will either lead to the younger brother, that is moral debauchery, or it will lead to the older brother, moral hypocrisy. But make no mistake about it, both rebel against the father, and both reject the father. The younger brother rejects his father by doing bad things. The older brother rejects his father by doing good things. Do you understand? It is the attitude of their heart whereby both manifest their idolatry, their self-worship, the hardness and impenitent heart that has them in its grip, that idolatry because they are suppressing the knowledge of God. Oh, do I minimize? Do I minimize the severity of my sin and the certainty of God's judgment? James Boyce writes, instead of acknowledging that what Paul says about the human race is true, most of us make excuses, arguing that although Paul's description may be true of other people, particularly very debased individuals, it is certainly not true of us. Do I minimize the severity of my sin and the certainty of God's judgment? Do I shake my head at others? Or do I recognize that my heart is just as sinful? Do I feel that I am a hopeless sinner? God could cast into hell this very moment. Do I know that Christ died to pay the penalty for my sin? Do I celebrate the gospel as God's power for salvation for everyone who believes? And do I see that God's kindness is intended to lead me to repentance. Our Father, 
We pray that you would give sight to the blind this day, give hearing to the deaf, those who are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, obtuse to the riches of your word and to the glories of your gospel, to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as your word has been proclaimed, we pray for unction that your spirit might move and that this indeed might be the day of salvation for some sinner, some rebel in our midst. We do praise you for the advancement of your kingdom. We praise you for your working among us. And we praise you and thank you and seek these things from you in that blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.